You're listening to Nick Luck Daily. This edition is brought to you by Fitzdares, by the Racehorse Owners Association, and by Thoroughbred Racing Commentaries Global Rankings. Good morning, welcome to the show. It is Thursday, the 5th of May. If you are where I am in Louisville, Kentucky. Today is Thurby, the Thursday before uh, the first Saturday in May. Uh, and if you're in the UK uh, or in Ireland, perhaps even, it is the middle day of Chester's May Festival, which got off to a good start yesterday with plenty of success for Aidan O'Brien and Ryan Moore. So we're talking derbies and derby trials. Uh, we'll be concentrating on Kentucky later in the program. Uh, I'll be featuring an extensive interview with owner Mike Rapoli, which is not one to be missed. But first of all, as I welcome in Jonathan Harding, a writer on the Racing Post for the first time uh, on this podcast, we reflect on, um, as your newspaper put it this morning, Jonathan, the empire striking back at Chester yesterday in the drizzle. What happened? Well, this was the another chapter in the ongoing power struggle between Godolphin and Coolmore in the Chester Vars. Uh, we've seen Godolphin pick up almost every big race so far this season, every trial, of course, winning the 2000 Guineas as well with Caribus. And it was the turn of Aidan O'Brien to sort of land a counter-strike at Chester, I suppose, with changing of the guard aptly named changing of the guard perhaps for this season and uh, he was an incredibly impressive winner under Ryan Moore beating New London who was Godolphin's derby shortest price derby hope heading into the day uh, so it was a very significant win and you've, you've got to think he'll have an interesting chance now in the derby for Aidan O'Brien uh, next month. There will be those who will think, right, this horse didn't win a race as a two-year-old and he has won a four-runner race in soft ground yesterday. Should he be in some places a single figure price for the derby. What was your take on it? What was your read on it? Well, look, he's a, clearly a late bloomer and he didn't exactly have the profile of a likely classic winner going into the day, having just won his maiden at Dundalk not that long ago. But I thought the way he stayed it, stayed the trip, toughed it out to beat what, what is a very good horse in New London was impressive. I think he probably benefited from being a little bit more battle-hardened than New London. He also got a fantastic ride from Ryan Moore, really positive off the front there. But I, I thought it was very impressive given given the back four, given his form up to this point. I thought it was a huge, huge step forward. Whether the Derby's a step too far next time, I don't know, but he's clearly peaking at the right time. And the sort of words of Kevin Buckley of Coolmore afterwards suggest that they've got another live contender to go with Luxembourg. Yeah, and you go back to Chester's in the past where horses like Ruler of the World suddenly announced themselves from from almost nowhere and then went on to to win at Epsom. And, and Aidan O'Brien has used Chester very effectively as a, a trial ground to prove horses, both stamina in the Vars and balance around those, uh, those tight bends. I was listening to Freddie Talitsky on Sky Sports Racing and shortly before Ryan Moore won both the Cheshire Oaks, more of which in a moment, and the, the Chester Vars, he said unequivocally, Ryan Moore, the best jockey in the world. And I thought, well, there's a, there's a few who'd be challenging for that position at the moment in Australia and America and Hong Kong. Uh, and his words proved quite prophetic as we got two front-running masterclasses. Talk me through what happened in the Cheshire Oaks. Well, it was a, it's a very similar ride. And it's, 
I'd probably agree with Taliki, certainly around Chester, more just goes out there with that kind of confidence and awareness of how that track rides. And I think he probably rides it better than most. So with thoughts of June, beaten on her first three starts. Um, but again, this sort of benefited from this positive positive ride. And it was a seventh win in the race for Aidan O'Brien as well, matching the record of Barry Hills. Yeah, Thoughts of June was the winner in the Moyglare stud colours. Above the curve went off the favourite for Joseph O'Brien. She was very much the buzz filly going into it. I don't know what you thought. I thought I wanted to back her now for the Oaks, having been beaten, just because she flashed loads of ability and circumstances undid her. No, I think you're right. I think they've both got a little bit of growing up and maturing to do. Um, But I think Joseph O'Brien's filly is possibly the one to take out of the race. Obviously, he's beaten Thoughts of June twice before. I think it's probably more likely she'll make it 3-1 than we Thoughts of June pulls it back to 2-all in the Oaks. I think the way she finished her race was incredibly eye-catching. And I think, again, it's you're almost looking at a situation whereby that Ryan Moore positive ride might have actually been the difference. I know we, we possibly give a little bit too much weight to how much a jockey can impact the race and it, is it the best horses and what have you. But I thought more on both of those rides just delivered it, delivered it to absolute perfection. It was, it was a really good performance. Well, we talk about who might have a stranglehold on the Kazoo Derby and we talk about another good trialist yesterday from Aidan O'Brien and we know that Charlie Appleby is shuffling his pack um, pretty ruthlessly as the next couple of weeks progress. But probably ought to give a little more attention to some of those a little bit deeper in, in the market. And one of those is French Claim, who was very impressive at Cork the other day. Yes, it was a small race, but he posted a very high racing post rating, ran a big figure for trainer Paddy Toomey, who's got his horses in absolutely sparkling form, and joins me now. And Paddy, you head to, to Leopardstown this weekend with a leading chance in the in the Derrinstown trial. Just for those who haven't seen much of this horse, tell us from your perspective just how good you think he's been so far. Well, he's been very progressive. I mean, he won first time out uh, and he did that, you know, he got left at the start and he put up a good performance to win the race uh, pretty comprehensively at the line. Um, met a bit of trouble in running on a second run in a group three where he showed his greenness as a two-year-old in, in what was a very good airfield stakes. Um, and, uh, you know, he turned out there this spring uh, in in his conditions race and, and he, he won it by nine lengths. So, you know, he's, he's every time we've asked him, he's answered. You know? In the close season, were you were you training him and looking at him, thinking, "This is my classic colt. This is a this is a potential Derby horse." Well, we gave him a, did all the Derby entries from Epsom to to uh, France, Ireland. We don't do that lightly. Um, we probably have more fillies than colts in the yard, and um, a lot of our colts wouldn't tend to stay the Derby trip. But this horse, this particular horse, we thought he did. So we gave him the entries, and you know. We said we'd see in the spring whether he'd be up to that or not. He's put, he's going the right way at the minute. Uh, he's by a French 15, who was a, a very talented horse, but he's out of a Galileo mare, getting a lot of his stamina from an old Aga Khan family. Just t- tell me about where he came from. He's a, he's a French bred horse, isn't he, as his uh, name would suggest? He is. He was bought um, by his current owners at the two-year-old sale. I think it was the Tattersall's Ireland sale at Newmarket last year from... Uh, 
Jeremy Von Kennedy of Sherburne Lodge uh, who breezed him and they bought him as a yearling in Deauville I think in, in November in a, in a, a late yearling sale for €9,000 so he was very inexpensively purchased as a yearling so off you go after the the runaway success at Cork to the the Derby trial this weekend at, at Leopardstown. I'm sure you've had a, a good dig into the race. How do you see it? How do you see your chances? It's a very competitive race, um, you know, as as what you'd expect for the grade. Um, it's his first time, you know. Well, he's ran in a group race before, but I suppose he was green and inexperienced. It's his first time he's ready for racing now, and you know, it, it'll give us a great indication as to you know where he belongs and. You know, does he belong in an Epsom Derby or not? You know, so uh, uh, it looks a deep race. It does look a deep race, but they're they're all quite experienced, unusually so. Because you think, you know, quite a lot of once race horses or twice race horses. A, a lot of these we know quite a lot about, Paddy, to the point where they've virtually all got a rating, and you're the second top rated horse, and probably one of the least exposed. Yeah, I suppose that that's true. You know, uh, I mean, look, there's horses unbeaten and Stone Age or whatever, Aiden's Galileo called there. Look, it's a very, the horses at the top of the race are very good. Like you say, we've seen plenty of them, but, you know, there could be a derby winner in there. So we're going to see where we see where we fit in that, that pecking order on Sunday. I mean, it's, it's hardly as though nobody knew who you were. You've had a lot of success for a few seasons now. But the 2022 really has been pretty astounding from a strike rate point of view and from a profile point of view. It's the age-old question. Why do you think this is? Why are all the stars aligning now? Oh, we've been lucky, you know. Since 2018, we've decided to focus on, on trading full-time. And year on year, we've been lucky to be supported by, you know, good owners with nice horses. And uh, luckily, year on year, they've improved and... Uh, I'd say we have a very nice set of horses there at the minute, and uh, luckily they're they're running as we'd hoped, or they're running to a high level, you know. And um, uh, you know we have a nice bunch, and I'm looking forward to the year ahead with them. Paddy Toomey, there, trainer of French Claim, who goes in the Derby Trial at Leopardstown, the race formerly known as the Derrynstown Derby Trial, this weekend. Jonathan Harding's still with me. Uh, Jonathan, Paddy wasn't giving away masses there, but this is clearly an interesting contender to add into the mix. Should should all go well, we've got that race. We've got. Lingfield at the weekend as well. We've also got the D stakes today. Can you see anything that's likely to emerge from any of those races as we try and clarify this derby picture? I mean, again, we go back to the ongoing battle between Godolphin and Coolmore, and I think Walk of Stars in the in the derby trial is probably the one that we're pinning our hopes on a little bit. He's second favourite at the moment. He's sort of now New London slightly... Um, Certainly didn't disgrace himself yesterday, but has a, a, lot, a long way to go before being sort of a real Derby contender. Um, I think Walk of Stars is probably the one because Aidan O'Brien at the moment's got Luxembourg and the winner yesterday changing of the guard. So it'll be interesting to see how he gets on. Okay, you've got the Chester Cup tomorrow. I know you've been charged by your newspaper with them um, uh, doing a preview of that. Where, where, where's the pin landed? I quite like the chances of Falcon 8 winning last year. Obviously, he's, um, the yard form concerns me a little bit. Dermot Weld's horses haven't been running exceptionally well, but it's Frankie Dottori back on a horse he knows. Uh, obviously, last year's winner, and I don't think the, the weight will be too much. I think he's the sort of group horse in there. Um, so I'll go with Falcon 8. Okay. I, I, it's not a race I would normally have a particularly strong view about, but... Uh, I noticed yesterday that Hugo Palmer sent out his first winner 
from Michael Owen's Manor House Stables, and a pretty impressive winner as well. And I thought that another horse he'd inherited, Solent Gateway, had an outstanding chance. We're not exactly being very original here. They're the 92 joint favourites, but uh, this is a horse completely unexposed over a trip and was very impressive when winning at Chester over two miles last autumn. Now, uh, we've been chronicling this ongoing battle between the the major power brokers in, in British racing this week. And I know you've been keeping a very close eye on the, well, what's it, developed into more more than just a spat between the Jockey Club and, and ARC and various other parties as, as well. You've written an interesting piece in the in the paper today where you've interviewed John Hughes, who we've talked to on this podcast a couple of times before, who runs a, a pressure group, I suppose you could call it, a sort of campaigning group uh, to try and come up with alternative strategies for the future of British racing from a, an ownership standpoint. Yes, and um, John Hughes is essentially calling for a data-led approach to the culling of races. This is the BHA proposal to cut 300 races from the calendar to combat what have been historically low field sizes this year. Of course, the consequences of that are clear in betting turnover and competitiveness of racing and all the rest of it. Um, Typically, with one of these things being announced, it's led to a fairly clear split in opinion. You've got the Trainers Federation and Nevin Truesdale, Chief Executive of the Jockey Club, in favour of cutting the calendar to improve the competitiveness of the racing and you also have typically arc going the other way um martin craddis chief executive of that major race course group pretty uh fiery response to the jockey club and the bha saying they're sort of being targeted by this and actually we're up for a review of the races but it can't be just the sort of lower grade races that get cut that arc largely are putting on on the all weather so it's a really interesting situation and John just lended a little bit of sort of common sense approach to this and his, his argument was that we need to essentially assess every race in the calendar and think, what does this add? What's this purpose? Is this race being run for betting reasons? Is this race being run for breeders because it's black type graded races? Is this race being run because people enjoy the race day? What's the attendance figures like? Essentially, the gist there is we're looking for an objective approach to avoid the sort of vested interest that leads to a jockey club and an arena racing falling out over this because everybody's going to have an idea about what constitutes what we're sort of branding a non-performing race, the type of race that should be cut. So it will be interesting to see how it develops. I don't think it's over yet. This will rumble on. Uh, there was an interesting intervention yesterday after Lee Motter said your colleague and I had quite a long discussion about it from Paul Johnson, who's the chief executive of the NTF. You'll remember if you were listening on Monday, Rafe Beckett gave a mention to Paul Johnson, who he described as a very effective chief executive of the National Trainers uh, Federation. And Paul said that Lee specif- specifies that removed races would be from the bottom end. I don't think Lee was alone. I think I was um, uh, sort of banging that drum a little bit as well, or at least I was going along with that assumption and Paul says I'm not aware of any such discussion my understanding is that the BHA would run their normal processes to determine the optimum program for the available population after volume is agreed this happens every year 
More from Jonathan in a few moments. Now, I'm in Kentucky and ahead of the Derby this weekend and the Oaks tomorrow, I took the chance to catch up with an owner who will be represented in both races. Mike Rapoli made his fortune in the drinks industry and he's been committed now for a couple of decades to trying to seek out the very best racehorses and he has had a good few as well. Uncle Mo perhaps being the best known of them. Of course, Vino Rosso, winner of the 2019 Breeders' Cup Classic as well. So he's represented doubly by Mo Donegal in the Derby and by the favourite Nest in the Oaks. Uh, I caught up with him yesterday and began by asking him why victory, particularly for Mo Donegal, would be so close to his heart. You know, I don't think I've ever purchased a, uh, you know, a minority percent of a racehorse at this high level or almost any level. But, you know, I've been ruined for this horse since uh, since his maiden in Saratoga. Um you know, listen, one, you know, obviously, you know, Nick, uh, every good horse I have is with Todd. So we have a great partnership. Always root for Todd. Um, the horse is ridden by a guy that I've had tremendous luck with lately, uh, Irad. And then and then the uh, the the final uh, and most important uh, reason was, you know, he's the son of Uncle Mo. And, uh, um, and you know how important Uncle Mo is to me. And I had outwork in the Derby when Nyquist won. And... Um, you know, when the opportunity came up, I've been rooting for this horse, you know, from the Remsen to, to the to the wood. And, uh, you know, it's uh, it, it came up and, you know, Jerry Crawford must be a great uh, marketer because I think it, by putting the name Mo in it made me even more excited <laughs> because I feel like I'm calling Mo now and has some special feelings. So uh, um, maybe when he named him, he said maybe one day he'll be good and Mike Rapoli will pay a lot for him. But uh, but it's it, it just checked all the boxes, honestly. And, and uh, uh, I can't be any more thrilled to have a horse in the Derby out of Uncle Mo. And um, you know, I still own Uncle Mo with Coolmore, and and we have about ten babies a year. And uh, he's so special to to me and my family. Uh, and of course, Uncle Mo, it, it was a question of what might have been. He has been a brilliant stallion. But it was that first Saturday in May. What did he get to? He got to about the first Thursday in May, Friday in May, before you had to scratch him. We scratched him Friday morning. We knew Thursday night. Um, you know, you know. I look back now, and you know, it's 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 you know, eleven years later. And uh, you know, I always said, listen, I you know, uh, if you can scratch the Derby favorite the day before the Derby, I don't know. What, I mean, what else can't you do in this game? I mean, if you can get through that, you can get through much. But you know, for me, listen, it, it was. Um, you know, I always I've always said that I think the friendship that Todd and I have now was really developed by that first, you know, it's easy to, you know, have a relationship when things are going great and, and you're winning races. But, you know, I saw how much he loved the horse and how much he cared about it. And he saw how important it was for me. And I was willing to spend any amount of money to keep the horse, uh, you know, alive. And we got on calls with Dr. Byers and a bunch of other vets. And we had conference calls and we were trying different things. And, you know, we were saving them at any cost. And, you know, listen, we really thought he was going to pass away. And, you know, you know, I think I really think that Todd moving so fast um, and me obviously sparing no expense um, really helped, you know, get him to where he is right now. And who knows if he would have been owned by somebody else. I'm not sure what they would have done. And, uh, you know, now that he's basically changing the breed, <laughs> you know, Nyquist and, and horses like Mo Donegal, uh and, and, you know, it's, 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 it's special. It's special. Uh, he's, uh, he's, uh, he's one of those, um, you know, he'll be one of those, he'll be one of the top five stallions of all time and, and, and sires, and he's going to change the bloodlines for years to come. 
Why is Todd Pletcher such a successful trainer? You've seen him up close and personal. You've been involved in some terrific horses with him. What makes him as good as he is? Uh, I mean, listen, if I had to narrow it down, I probably would say Mike Rapoli. But, uh, (laughs) (laughs) yeah, funnily enough, he said the same thing. Yeah. There you go. So, um, listen, I, I think, you know, I've said this, it didn't, Todd is a, um, corporate, uh, you know, fortune 500 CEO. Um, he, he just happened to be a trainer, but, uh, as far as having systems and processes, as far as being organized with a 200, uh, horse stable and probably having owners with a hundred horses at the farm, um, he, he knows where every horse is. He knows whether they're galloping, jogging, uh, stall rest or working, um, no matter where he is four different divisions. And, um, and he sees things that, you know, others, people's people don't see when a horse is working and, uh, the ability to place horses in the right spots and develop horses. Um, it's probably why not only, I mean, for me, he's by far the greatest trainer of all time and, you know, look at all the horses out there that are stallions out of Todd Pletcher, whether it's Constitution or Uncle Mo or, or Quality Road. I mean, uh, the list goes on and on. So um, he just, you know, listen, he's he does everything. I mean, there there might be somebody who focuses more on three-year-old dirt horses. There might be someone that does a great, better job at turf. But when you look at two-year-olds, three-year-olds, four-year-olds, males and uh, colts and fillies, and when you look at um, you know, uh, turf or dirt, sprint or distance. He's got he's got something for everything. Um, it's it's amazing, and uh, he's uh, he's the Hall of Fame of Hall of Famers. He's the he's the best. Um, Mo Donegal is a a dream, though he has a a strong chance. Nest, uh, your your filly in the in the Kentucky Oaks. People expect people ex- just expect her to win. Pletcher's looking for his fifth Kentucky Oaks. She comes here off the back of an eight and a quarter length victory in the Ashland. How high are your expectations for her, Mike? Well, Nick, being in the game for a while, I've done a really good job of keeping my anxiety at bay until like the day of the race. But the way you just explained it, you just upped my anxiety about 300%. So I really want to thank you for that. Uh, expect to win. Wow, that's really good. That makes me feel super. But, uh, you know, listen, she's a special filly. Um You know, I had unlimited budget, was undefeated going into this race. She came in third. And she probably lost in the probably the greatest field. You had Princess Asilma, Beholder, Midnight Lucky, Dreaming of Julia, uh, and and an unlimited budget. It was unbelievable. First to like eighth place was like all grade one winners. Um, this is you know it seems like every time I'm in the Oaks, you get monsters, and you got you know uh, obviously Echo Zulu, and you have uh, a Secret Oath, and you have. Uh, Catherine O and 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 the you know so many and, and and obviously Nest and so many other Phillies. I mean, listen, this this Philly is out of curling. Uh, usually they're just getting warmed up at three and they flourish at four. She won the Dalmazella two. She won, she broke her maiden first time going a mile and sixteenth. I'm not sure how many two year olds have broken their maiden the first time at a mile and a sixteenth. And uh, she she gets better. I mean, the Crohn's are like this. She is getting better every week, every race, every day. Um, and she's going to be tough. I mean, uh, you got 14 horses. You got weather, unpredict- uh, unpredictable weather, um, rain, sun, drying out track. Who knows? But um, I wouldn't trade places with anybody. And I have a funny feeling if the other 13 uh, 
uh, owners could trade places. They might look at this and say, listen, I, I'd like to take this silly right now. She's peaking at the right time. I don't know. I've got this funny feeling that um, if she wins the Kentucky Oaks, maybe this is another one of those Pletcher specials, the filly that goes to the Belmont Stakes. You know, listen, a mile and a half, would, would she'd easily get the distance, that's for sure. Um, you know, and, and we'd have to look at the field, but you know, by then... <laughs> You know, come on, Nick, you know what's going to happen by then. Moe Donegal's going to win the Derby and the Preakness, so I can't run her against him, right? Come on. So uh, so who knows? Like I always say, think big, dream bigger. So, uh, you know, nothing would make me happier to, you know, have her win the Oaks and have me think about that problem uh, in the future. But uh, winning this race would be uh, so special. I got 70 people coming in and, uh, you know, you know, to be a kid from Queens, New York, and have a horse in the Oaks and Derby on a weekend, and uh, it's pretty special, and it never gets old. Mike Rapoli there, and very best of luck to him with Mo Donegal and also with Nest. And I suspect if Mo Donegal is to win, the celebrations will live long, long in the memory. As he said, it never gets old, that quest to find the very best racehorse. But the very best racehorses must have the very best start in life if they're to thrive, which takes us back to Watership Down Stud, where we spent the, the back end of last week. And I was lucky enough to talk to the man chiefly responsible for really making sure that mares were in foal and looking after the foals when they were born. Uh, the vet at Watership Down at uh, Donington Grove Veterinary Practice, Phil uh, Dolivera. And I began by asking him what it was, particularly about this branch of uh, equine medicine that, that attracted him. Part of the reason I love doing the stud work is you can follow families through. You get to follow a foal through from when it's a one centimetre V-school inside the mare to seeing it raised to then going on to stand as a stallion. So, you know, that side of thing is is very, very rewarding. Uh, it's nice to see sort of mares coming back from racing and then producing their own families, their own dynasties. And, and it's uh, the continuity of it is, is fantastic for me. Uh, so how big a part of your, your role is actually concerned with getting mares in foal, the fertility side of it first? Of um, I would say sort of this time of the year, it's most of the work. So probably 60% of my time is spent trying to get mares in foal. Um, the rest is looking after the, the foals on the ground uh, and following pregnancies that are already inside the mare. So um, we're coming towards the back end of the season. So we're kind of getting a bit more desperate to get these mares in foal. Um, so we're kind of pulling out all the stops to, uh, to, to, to see that happens. Okay, so how do you do that? If you're, if you're not just leaving it to nature, how do you make sure you're giving yourself the best chance, the optimal chance of getting a mare in foal? Um, so the, the, the critical thing with thoroughbred breeding is the, is the timing of the mating. So the timing of the cover is, is absolutely critical. Uh, the stallions are very busy, so they, they really only want to be mating a mare once when she's at the best point of her heat cycle mm-hmm. um, so part of my job is when we when we scan these mares uh, trying to get to that to that that absolutely ideal day sometimes it's down to a few hours that we're trying to get that mare to the stallion so it's kind of uh, it, it's it's um it's involved with scanning uh, sometimes uh, people use a teaser stallion that will tell you how the mare's behaving to to um whether she's showing in season, whether she's showing signs of being receptive to the stallion, um, mostly through scanning ovaries and uh-huh. having a look and, and, and seeing when we think they're ready. So it's a, it's a, it's a 
a decision to then ship them onto the box, sometimes hours, and hopefully you've got it right. And obviously maintaining you know, their health absolutely, is, yeah. is, is absolutely yeah. key. Yeah, I'm certainly a big believer in, in the fact that mares that aren't in, in sort of tip-top condition will not get in foal. Mares that have anything wrong with them, if they're you know, sort of low-grade pain or, or, or lameness issues, that is a, to me is a, is a, is a, is a massive um, problem with, with trying to get these mares in foal. They have to be healthy, they have to be happy, they have to be managed properly. Um, mares stood in boxes generally I, in my hands certainly I would struggle to get a male of that in foal so they need to be horses they need to be out on 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 pasture and comfortable and well fed well looked after and then when the when the foals arrive um, is it fairly obvious from a fairly early stage whether you would need to intervene in any meaningful sense uh, I would say yes so so going from sort of the, the immediate sort of emergency resuscitation then um followings are sort of quite explosive events and things happen very quickly so um generally they will be um if we're called out to a following generally it's 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 because things have gone pretty badly on on most thoroughbred studs the um the people responsible for following the mares have years and years of experience hundreds of mares so when we get called in then it's um it's usually quite serious so um from the immediate sort of resuscitating a foal, trying to get it breathing, trying to make sure its heart's going. Further on from that, we have foals that that, that have problems standing. Um, foals are quite susceptible to having um, being oxygen deprived at birth. That's a big problem, sort of in the in the hours and days mm-hmm. post foaling. So that's something we have to deal with a lot. If, if they are oxygen deprived, does that then mean that, that that you're then struggling to get them to 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 suckle? So anywhere from a foal being sort of slow to stand and needing help to actually sort of being collapsed to fitting, uh, you know, seizures, those sorts of things. So it's, so depending on the degree of oxygen deprivation, there's a whole sort of spectrum of, of problems we're looking at. Some are so serious that we, we end up losing the foals and some are sort of very minor. We end up, you know, a couple of days later with a foal that is, to all, ascent, to all intents and purposes, normal and you never knew there was a, a problem in the first place. So sometimes, even after a bad start, you can end up with a with a champion, and it'll all be forgotten very quickly. Absolutely, yeah, absolutely, and that's um, there's certainly a fair few horses out there that have um, surprised us in sort of very bad beginnings and have um, have gone on to to do do very well indeed. Uh, and what about actively um, actively having to interfere in a in a horse's conformation or, or, or physiology if a foal is is really incorrect? What, how do you how do you go about about correcting a, a problem, and what are the sort of ethics of that? Um, so, I think there are there are some problems that you have to intervene almost at birth. So, foals that can't stand because they've got um, conformational problems. Um, we see quite a lot of contracted foals, so the so the tendons are contracted and, and the legs are not straightened properly. Mm-hmm. Those are generally sort of fairly easy to help with splints and with, with casting. We can generally get those right quite quickly if they're not too severe. Um, more serious problems. Uh, we, we, I'm, I'm a great believer that, that foals will find a way to straighten themselves out. Um, so you'd be a non-interventionist by temperament unless you really needed to. I, absolutely, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Because I think sometimes we can, you know, we can, we can think we're being smart and do too much. But I think um, nature tries to find a way of, of, of achieving correctness. Um, having said that, you know, we will, we will do quite a lot 
with the farriers in the first few weeks just to make sure that we're helping we're not pushing we're just kind of helping just to try and maintain a, a correct horse and, and the reason for doing that is that any sort of confirmational abnormality from the sort of the norm tends to be associated with higher risk of injuries further down the line so you know we're trying to get a a horse that's within sort of a a, a certain sort of range of 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 confirmational correctness that, that we think will make it more likely to stand up to athletic training and, and going forward. And, and is horse racing in, in your blood anyway before before you started doing this? No, no, not at all. Not at all. My, um, my, uh, I'm originally from Portugal. My mum makes red wine and I've, um, <laughs> no, nothing to do with horses. I, I, um, when I started off as a vet, I did a bit of everything and I particularly enjoyed the horse work. Got an opportunity to do an internship in Newmarket and um, never looked back. Well, racing and red wine, it's not a bad combination. No, 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 absolutely, absolutely. <laughs> Good to talk to you. Yeah, and you. Right, thanks to all the team uh, at Watership Down and to Mike Rapoli and also to Paddy Toomey. Good luck to them over the weekend. Jonathan Harding is still with me. Now, Jonathan, you, you're a fan of the Hall of Fame, right? Certainly am. Yeah, okay. Racing fans have until midnight on Sunday the 22nd of May to decide which of three Derby winning horses should join recent inductees Frankie Dottorian and Dancing Brave in the Kipco British Champion Series Hall of Fame. Right, the three you can choose from are 1981 runaway derby hero Shergar, 2001 impressive derby winner and breed shaper Galileo, and one of the horses of the modern era on the race course, 2009's Guineas, Derby, Eclipse, Irish Champion Stakes, Arc winner, See the Stars. Galileo, see the stars, or Shergar. Now we're now we're cooking on gas, aren't we? Actually, having to make people decide between three of those. Yeah, that's an incredibly tight one. That's sort of the three of the biggest the equine names we've ever had. Um, I personally, my gut instinct as you were reading them out was Galileo, simply because of the his, his sort of influence off the track in shaping the breed. But you, you wouldn't like to choose. Okay, so Galileo for you, Jonathan. I found this very, very difficult because, of course, in a sort of American-style Hall of Fame, they would all be in there, and I'm sure they will find their way in there at, at some point. I think I'd agree, though. I think I'd have to go with Galileo. I think, he, he, what was it, yesterday he got his 349th individual stakes winner or something like that? So there you are. You've got until midnight on the 22nd of May, midnight on Sunday the 22nd of May, to decide which of those three Derby winners should join Frankie Dottori and Dancing Brave in the Hall of Fame. Uh, Shergar Galileo will see the stars. And to register your vote, and the voting is now open, horseracinghof.com, horseracinghof.com forward slash voting. And away you go. The voting is now open. And your final task, Jonathan, is do you have a tip for me for today, tomorrow, or whenever? My tip is in the 205 at Chester on Friday and it's Brentford Hope who's going to love the ground and absolutely hacked up last time he was in handicap company. I don't think top weight will stop him on Friday. So that's Brentford Hope. All right. Thanks to Jonathan. Thanks to all my guests today. Thank you for listening. I'll be back tomorrow, which is Kentucky Oaks Day when Lydia Hislop and James Willoughby will be joining me amongst others, of course, and plenty more Derby and possibly even Derby chat. See you then. Bye bye. You've been listening to Nick Luck Daily, brought to you in association with Fitzdares, the Racehorse Owners Association and Thoroughbred Racing Commentary. 
Thank you.